Uh, this Sunday, we're going to do what I call a one-off. It's not part of a, a series of sermons. It's the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and I just wanted to stop and, and think about <clears throat> how God has blessed us and how we owe him our thanks. Uh, next Sunday, we begin the season of Advent. We're moving into uh, getting closer to the Christmas season, and uh, it's going to be a little different this year as we move toward Christmas. We're going to have some mystery speakers, preachers along the way. So you've got to come and figure out who you're going to hear the message from next week and the week after and the week after and the week after that. So over the next four weeks, you'll have to come and see. And our, our theme for Advent is Untangling Christmas. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I tried to make a little bit of use of the good weather to get outside and put up a few Christmas lights on our house. If you haven't done that, well, too bad. But, you know, we, we struggle with this rush in our culture where it seems like after Halloween, uh, everything's out on the shelves for Christmas. And... Uh, Stores are already playing Christmas music, and we just sort of rush from the fall right into the winter, and we need to stop a little bit. We need to slow down and celebrate Thanksgiving. It's not just a time for us to be together with family. It's not just a time to feast and be reminded of all the bounty we have, but it's a time to reflect and to appreciate all that we enjoy and how God has taken care of us. And so I want us to take just a few moments today to think about thanks and giving and uh, look at how uh, our culture doesn't do that very well. One of the things about giving thanks is that um, thanks requires something of us that we may not be that enthusiastic about offering. When we stop to give thanks, it means that we're acknowledging that somebody has done something other than us and we owe them some kind of a debt of gratitude. Many, many years ago, I went through a difficult season in ministry. Um, and, you know, sometimes you might think that the most difficult seasons in ministry are the times when, you know, numbers are down and budgets are tight and there's stress from those kinds of things and not as many people are coming to worship and attending the church. But this one was act. Actually, the opposite. The church I was pastoring had grown. The numbers were up. There were more people there. And we had money left over at the end of our budget, which is rare in churches. So some of the lay leaders in our church were looking at this. I was looking at this. And I thought, my goodness, we've got some money left over here. What should we do? I had some ideas. They had some ideas. Um, some of them were good ideas. Some of them were not. We had about $50,000 at the end of the year, and, which is nice. It's the only time in my ministry when I've had that happen. It was great. And at the end of the year, I, I uh, wrote a proposal to our congregation that we start a scholarship fund to help some of our young people, our teens, go to some of our colleges and get more education. We'll do a little bit of a scholarship for them. That's what, that was my idea. One of the leading laymen, his idea was that they should give the pastor a raise. 
And he was pretty adamant about that. And he went to bat. And there were some people in the church who said, well, we better not do that because if the giving goes back down, you know. And, then, and I'm sure there were some people, they never said it to my face, but I'm sure there were some people who thought he doesn't deserve it. But regardless, at the end of the year, as we were voting and we were talking about how we're going to handle this excess that God had given us, they voted to give me a pretty significant raise. And it was very nice. And uh, one of the people that had opposed it came to me afterward and said, you know, it would be nice if you had thanked us for your raise. And I stopped for a moment and, and, and I was kind of checked and I thought, in my spirit, I thought, was I not grateful? And so I, I said, you know, I am sorry. I should have been humble enough to thank you for giving me an increase in my salary. And I apologize. So thank you very much. And the next Sunday I will, next Sunday I'll get up and I'll say thank you for voting an increase in my salary. But I said, um, just remember this. You're not giving me a gift. And he goes, what? And I said, you're not giving me a gift. Scripture says a workman's worthy of their wage. This is something that I believe you're saying I earn. So, this is your way of saying thank you to me. (laughs) Now, as you can imagine, he wasn't that thrilled at hearing me push back. And I said, and so I pushed a little harder with him. I said, why don't you go to that guy that spoke up and said, hey, I've crunched the numbers and we should give our pastor about a $4,000 raise. Why don't you go back and ask him what his motivation was? Why did he think we should do that with the money? He goes, why? Why, Why should I do that? I said, because my hunch is that he's trying to thank me for something I've already done and give a debt of gratitude back. So I said, I'll be happy to say thank you. Will you return the favor? You would think that that conversation would have been the beginning of the end of our relationship. You would think that he would have said, you arrogant pastor, that you would say, I owe you. I'm the one that helps write your paycheck. You owe me. You work for me. But you know, that started a conversation that we really needed to have, he and I. And I'm grateful to say that to this day, he is my friend. And we love to see each other. And, and he never did come back and say, you know, thanks for pushing back against me. But he did come back and acknowledge. About three months later, he came back and he goes, you know what we're paying you? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and he said, you're worth more than that. And I, I had to tell him there and then, thank you for saying that. Because gratitude is way more than just dollars and cents. Gratitude is way more than just, I really appreciate you being there. The trouble that we have in our culture is that there is a cultural resistance to saying, I owe someone something and humbly need to acknowledge that. There are places and there are ways where we're getting better at this and we're good at it. We're doing a lot better job these days at thanking our veterans than we used to. For the debt that we owe them, for the sacrifices people made in our military to live and work in ways that did not acknowledge their sacrifices. 
We're getting better at acknowledging people like our teachers. People who work really hard for less than their worth. But then again, there's a lot of people where we just say, you know, I owe you nothing. We want to say, I owe you nothing. And we certainly don't want to extend blessing to people who cannot repay it. Oh my goodness. Would I consider giving something to a person who can't somehow return my investment? Let's not do that. You see, our tendency, I think, in our culture is to try and make Thanksgiving about as easy as we possibly can. And so generally in our families, and I'm going I'm to start throwing rocks here, and see, they're already getting up and leaving. I haven't even said the offensive thing yet. But here it is. The easy thing is we sit around a table where we've just eaten way more food than we should have, really, really good food with people we really, really love. And then we say, tell us something you're thankful for. And, you know, it's usually something like, I'm thankful for my health and I'm thankful for my job and I'm thankful for my family. And we just say these words to each other. And all we do is offer a little bit of sentiment. That's all. And I'm grateful for my family and I'm grateful. But, but it's just words. I'm grateful to be an American. I'm grateful for my church. And we offer these words without actually doing the task, the deed of thanksgiving. We need to acknowledge, and I was reminded of this this week, we need to acknowledge that we are extraordinarily fortunate people. I really resist saying we're lucky. Because lucky seems like there's some kind of a chance. Somebody somewhere rolled the dice and we benefited from that. I don't like to tell people, well, good luck with that, you know, or good luck on the job interview. Because here's the thing. I don't think you're going to get the job based on luck. I think you're going to get the job based on other things. Merit, God's favor, your work. I don't think that's luck. And for me to say, you know, I'm really lucky. I was lucky to be born into the family where I was born. I was lucky to be born an American. I was lucky to be born at the time when I was born and enjoy the technology and the safety and security that we have. That has nothing to do with luck, I don't think. However, it sometimes seems rather arbitrary that you and I landed here now. And other people landed somewhere else at another time. It was far more difficult. And maybe it's harder for us to give thanks because we haven't experienced what is far more difficult. So you remember the story. I mean, we all did this as kids. We cut out the construction paper and we made the fake Indian hats and turkeys and and pilgrim hats. And we remember the story of some people that left England because they were being persecuted because of their beliefs. And they came to the United States looking for religious freedom. That's why the pilgrims came. And then they landed in the United States and they went from difficult situation to a worse situation. And the first winter in Plymouth, most of them died. After the first harvest, 
they acknowledged, let us do something to give thanks. Now, historians may debate about whether Native Americans were included or not and how that worked, but regardless, the fact that we know is true is these people suffered, they buried their loved ones, and then when they reaped a harvest of food, they stopped and they said, let's have a feast and let's acknowledge our good fortune. Doesn't sound like good fortune, but that's what they said. So really, Thanksgiving has to do with us coming through some kind of a loss, some kind of suffering, doing without, and then pausing just for a moment to say, okay, now that I've come through that, let me acknowledge that this is better. There's this passage in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 26. As the people of God have come out of, e- uh, of Egypt and out of slavery, they've been traveling 40 years because they were wayward and selfish and complainers. A generation has died off, and there's a generation now that all they know is desert travel. And in Deuteronomy, the, this is what the Lord gives to them. Verses 1 through 11. Once you've entered the land, the Lord is giving you as an inheritance. And you take possession of it and you settle there. You know, once you've gone through the desert, the hard stuff, the suffering, where you buried your parents. Once you've settled there, take some of the early produce of the fertile ground that you have harvested from the land the Lord your God is giving you. And put it in a basket. Then go to the location the Lord your God selects for his name to reside. Go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I am declaring right now before the Lord my God that I have indeed arrived in the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest will then take the basket from you and place it before the Lord your God's altar. Then you should solemnly state before the Lord your God, my father was a starving Aramean. He went down to Egypt living as an immigrant there with few family members, but that is where he became a great nation, mighty and numerous. The Egyptians treated us terribly, oppressing us and forcing hard labor on us. So we cried out for help to the Lord our ancestors, God. The Lord heard our call. God saw our misery and our trouble and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, with awesome power, with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land full of milk and honey. So now I am bringing in the early produce of the fertile ground that you, Lord, have given me. Set the produce before the Lord your God, bowing down before the Lord your God. Then celebrate all the good things the Lord your God has done for you and your family, each one of you along with the Levites and the immigrants who are among you. 
There's an awful lot in that, isn't there? Here are these people. They're about to cross the border. They're about to get into the promised land, this land that was promised to Abraham generations ago. And the the Lord says, this is going to happen. You're going to go in and you're going to live in this land, I promise you. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight because they didn't just go in and people handed them keys to houses. They had to go to battle. They had to take the land. They had to subdue the land, as some translations say. But they're getting ready to go across, and the Lord reminds them, hey, when you get there, and you start planting crops, and you start to reap from those crops, when you get there, remember, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the priest. I want you to take a basket of food. I want you to put it down before the altar, and I want you to tell the story, and I want you to remember. So here's the thing. When it comes to Thanksgiving, memory matters. We need to remember who we are, where we've come from, what we've come through. And not only that, we need to remember who we are becoming. And so as the Lord institutes this and as the people hear these instructions, this is how you're to give thanks. He's telling them, tell the story, the story of what's happened to us. I think there are times when we try to paint the good old days in such a way that we can look back with nostalgia. And so we look back and then we pine and we long for those days when we think, oh, it was so much better. One thing I know about the good old days is they weren't all that good. We tend to Look back with rose-colored glasses. I mean, the people of Israel did this. They did it right away. As soon as they walked out of Egypt and they came up to the water's edge at the Red Sea, they turned to, to Moses and they said, you know, it wasn't that bad. Can't we turn around and go back? Because in Egypt we ate. Oh, we were slaves. We were murdered, but we ate. And they begin to forget those pieces and they begin to long for, can I just have some food? And they look back at the good old days in quotes that were not great. I'm sure that then generations later, as people are celebrating together the Passover and things like that, they'll look back and they'll go, oh man, for the days when God showed up to the nation of Israel and we got to see him because there was a pillar of cloud and there was a pillar of fire and we watched a sea that just opened up and there was dry land. Oh my goodness, those were the good old days when God really showed up. It was probably handy that all the people that had seen and experienced that were dead. Because some of them would say, yeah, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. All we ate for those years was manna and quail. Yeah, dry land, but we had an army behind us. They were there to kill us or enslave us. We forget that. We look back at our good old days and we look back and we say, wow, you know, if only we could go back in America to the way things were in the 1950s. I heard somebody say this recently. And I said, you know, in the 1950s, the church was at the center of American culture. And, you know, we were in this era post-World War II where there was economic growth and there was stability and there was peace and all these things. And we forget, we forget that we were in the midst of a Cold War and by 1962 we were ready to see 
missiles launched from Cuba. We forget that in our schools, we were building fallout shelters. We forget that in the 1950s, the civil rights movement had yet to really take place. And there were people of color around us that did not enjoy the the freedoms that they have now. As we say, as, as a friend of mine said those things, I said, you know, if you were to ask a black person in America if they'd like to go back to the 1950s, they'll tell you no. <laughs> and then we forget, you know, I remember, and I was doing a little reminiscing this week with Sid as we were drinking coffee together, and I said, you know, I remember as a kid when we would, we would uh, be here in the United States and uh, when we were here on a home assignment and we would start our home assignment in Southern California at my grandparents' house. We picked up a car. We had a Rambler station wagon. If you don't know what a Rambler station wagon is, you're way too young for this story. Go back to sleep. <laughs> we had a Rambler station wagon and we were going to drive it from Los Angeles to Kansas. And I just think, well, those are great old days. Grandpa and Grandma were there. We were at their house. And I remember, and then I, and the story unfolds like this. We ate supper together at Grandpa and Grandma's house before we hit the road. And we left after supper. Anyone know why? Thank you. Bill remembers. There was no air conditioning in that Rambler. And we had to drive across the Mojave Desert. So as soon as supper was over, we loaded the station wagon and we started heading east across the desert at night in the good old days. My family's putting together a little bit of a family reunion, some gathering of our cousins on my dad's side out in Southern California this next year. I'm flying. I'm flying. You see, we need to remember what has happened to us. We need to tell these stories to our children. And our children will have stories to tell their kids. Our children will have the story to say, you know, when I was a kid, 9-11 happened. And if God is the God that I know him to be, they'll say, let us be thankful that we don't live in that era anymore. See, we need to remember what has happened to us. Some of us need to remember, there's only a few of us left here in this congregation, but there are a few that remember when this body of believers met in a daycare center. There are more of you that remember when this church met in a school. Right? And I am so thankful every week when I come up here and I walk in the doors of this facility that God has given us and I go, thank you, Lord. And sometimes I don't remember that often enough when I'm complaining about something that needs fixed around here. Thank you, Lord, that you blessed us with this place. You see, in order for us to give thanks, we need to define the good in our lives. Our tendency, our human tendency is to put our eyes on the negative and to focus on those things and to maybe even idolize those things. Let me tell you how bad my life is. We all know people like this, don't we? It doesn't matter how great the day is. It doesn't matter how good things are. There will always be someone who will go, oh yeah, but the wind's blowing. If you want to learn about this, what you should really do is you should move to one of the small towns in Kansas that is populated primarily by farmers. Because here's what farmers do. 
it'll rain, and you go, wow, thank God for the rain. And they'll go, well, it was too late for my wheat. Or it'll, you know, the sun will come out, and it'll be a wonderful day, and they'll go, well, you know, that, yeah, that's great, but, you know, that wind's blowing. It's drying out my crops. Farmers somehow have this ability to take the best of situations and find the downside. I love them. Some of them I'm related to. But you know, it's not just farmers. It's the other people at work. When they say, you know, we're going to give you an extra two weeks off mandatory shutdown this, week, this year. And somebody goes, oh, great. And somehow we will define things negatively. We will always be able to see the downside because we are faithless people at times. So here's what I want to do. I want to challenge you this week to define the good. So as you sit down for that feast with family, if you're going to have that conversation, what are you thankful for? Ask yourselves this first. What are the good things that we enjoy that God has given us that we did not earn? What are the good things we enjoy that we know came from God himself? Let's not be people who are distracted by the negative to the point that we refuse to acknowledge the good that God is doing. There's a reason why God asked Moses to institute this law where from time to time he interrupted the, the flow of life and said, now I want you to stop here and I want you to declare a Sabbath. I want you to declare a feast. And you're to stop what you're doing and you're to make a meal and you're to do this and you're to do that. And so there were, there's these feasts, there's about seven of them throughout the year of the Jewish year where God said, now when you get to this point, I want you to stop because at this point I want you to acknowledge that you need me. And at this point I want you to give thanks. And at this point I want you to have the Feast of Booths where you just welcome in strangers. And there were these different times where God said, I just want you to stop and look around because you're going to go, oh, I've got to get up again and go to work and I've got to work those fields and and, you know, the rain and the sun and all this stuff. And God just says, I want you to stop for a moment and look around and go, this, this is better. This is better. And I know for some of you, you might say, this is the worst season of my life. But I guarantee you, God is at work. And if we can see where he's at work, we'll start to define that good. Because God never perpetrates evil. He never does. I remember several years ago, I was sitting in the living room of Bruce and Kay Klein. Some of you know them and love them dearly. They were a part of our congregation, dear old saints who are now in glory. But I was sitting there and, and we were talking and Bruce and I were talking about someone who had passed away and, and how we defined their life and how we defined their passing and and Bruce said something that stuck with me. It was very simple, but it stuck with me. He said, you know, we need to announce to God's people that death is not of God. We should never define this as, well, the Lord removed them. And he reminded me, just, just this little theological discussion, he said, we need to remind people that death is part of the wages of sin. And then, in true understated, quiet, Bruce Klein fashion. He followed that up with, but we also need to remind them that the gift of God is eternal life. Just defining that good. 
So I can push back when someone says, well, there must be a reason they died. Well, God must have needed them or something. No, 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 no. This doesn't have to be good for God to still be good. This doesn't have to feel right for us to say, but God will work good here. So for some of you, your circumstances might be a little different this Thanksgiving. Maybe you're not getting together with a bunch of people who love you. Maybe you're not going to have a table that overflows with more food than you can eat. But if God is at work, there is still good for us to define. And if we can acknowledge that with our mouths, if we can say that, we can speak a humble truth. Well, God, you are good. And these things go beyond my capacity to control. I can't make it rain. I can't make the sun shine. I can't force people to like me. I can't put that much food on my table. But God, if you are working for the good, then I will humbly give you thanks. It's just an honest reflection. It's just looking around and saying, God is doing great things and I'm making an honest reflection. It's our way of acknowledging, God, there are many good things in our lives and we couldn't have done them. We could not have orchestrated them. We couldn't have made them happen. Maybe we tried another way and it didn't happen and now we look back and we go, well, thank the Lord that he knew what he was doing. Yeah, I'm a fixer. Like a lot of you, we want to fix things. And we've, we've always got ideas of how things can be better. And I hope we always do. I think God gives us inspiration to do those kinds of things. So we may look at a problem, whether it's on our building here or on your car or at your house, and say, well, you know, we could, we could you know, tear this down and do that and rebuild it to look like this, and that'll be a lot better. We're also fixers in our lives, you know. I, there's, there's habits that I have that I don't want to have anymore, and I need to work on those things because God's not going to wave a magic wand over me and just all of a sudden take my habit away. And we want to fix these things, but there are things that we have to acknowledge. They just get away from us, and they, they are larger than we can manipulate. But they are never larger than the Lord. They're never larger than our God. And we have to come to a place where we say, I cannot do this. We cannot do this. But God can. God can do this. Whether it's a family member who who holds up their hand to God and says, no way, but we pray and plead for them and they won't listen to us anymore and they refuse us, but God is still at work in their lives. Whether it's that situation at work where you just go, you know, I've tried and I'm tired and it's not getting changed, it's not getting better and it just seems beyond me and my, my superiors don't listen to me and nobody's making decisions the way I think they should. Well, let me tell you, God is at work there and it is not bigger than him. Where there's that situation at school and those friends and the way a friendship is going and you just go, they, they won't listen to me anymore, they don't even treat me well anymore and let me tell you, God is at work there and it is not bigger than him. Whether it's the issues in your marriage or the issues in your parenting or the issues in our capital. We could go on and on. We serve a God who is active and working everywhere all the time with all people. And that is humbling. 
And it's freeing. So here's the thing. If those things are true, if that's our attitude, and we're just going to make an honest reflection of what God is doing and how he's blessed us, and acknowledge that so maybe the older days weren't so good, and maybe God is doing a new thing, how do we respond to that? Well, I go back to that passage in Deuteronomy. Here are the people who were on the border. They were getting ready to go in the promised land. And you remember some of the stories from the Old Testament. They went into the promised land, and I said nobody handed them the keys to the houses. They had to march around Jericho. They had to go to battle. They had to take the land. It wasn't easy, but it was better. It was sure better than wandering in the desert and eating manna. And this is what the Lord said. So when you get there and you plant your crops, the early fruit is what CEB said. Another translation says, the first fruits, take some of that, put it in a basket, and bring it to a place I designate and give it to the priest and give thanks. And give thanks. You see, we tend to dwell on the thanks part of thanksgiving and leave out the giving part. And this isn't about putting a bigger check in the offering plate. This is about acknowledging God in such a way that we bring back to him some kind of sacrifice. What do I give God in thanks? I don't know what God would say to you. I'm sure he's speaking in some way. I know there's some things that the Lord has impressed on me and said, you know what, I want you to give this up. And some of those things are things I have to visit every day, every week and go, okay, Lord, no more. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. And sometimes it's not the way I would choose, but the Lord says, come and give, and I give, and I find that I am usually better for it. And it feels like a sacrifice. It feels like I'm, I'm letting go of something that is really dear to me, and I may never hold it again, only to have my hand open to the Lord for what he has to give me. For some of us, this is family. We hold on to our family so tight and we're not willing to open up and say, Lord, you take them, you use them where you want them because it's better for them to be where you want them than near me. For some of us, this is those habits. It's those things that we've made a part of our life that are not necessarily evil, but they've kind of created a routine in us that we need to break apart and make room and space for something else. So I've got to give up my time with TV or social media or eating that many carbs. What God is asking of you, when you open your hand to let go of it, you will find that your hand is remarkably open to receive So I'm not giving you any prescription. I'm not up here saying, I want you to check the box. Are you ready to give this? Because I don't know what this is in your life. Some of you have heard me tell this story, and I'm going to close with this story, but it's one that means an awful lot to me. My friend Scott used to tell the story years ago. He had a boat. 
It wasn't a fantastic expensive boat, but it was just a simple ski boat that he would take out to the lake, he and his wife, and they would invite friends on the weekend and they'd go camp and then they'd go fishing and they'd go water skiing. And he had this boat. Before I met him, he went through this spiritual journey and the Lord began to speak to Scott. And one day the Lord told Scott, I want your boat. Really? (laughs) My boat? You want my boat? And so he had this ongoing conversation over a few months with the Lord, and the Lord kept impressing on, I want your boat, I want your boat. So he and his wife, Laura, they started talking, do we donate it to this, you know, some camp or some organization? What does this mean that God wants our boat? And finally, they decided all they were going to do was advertise it, and Laura went to work one day and said, I think we're going to get rid of our boat. And there was another guy in the office with her that he heard that, and he turned around and he goes, I'll buy it. She goes, well, we didn't tell you a price. He goes, no, I know, but we're looking for a boat. I'd buy it. And so she called her husband and said, hey, you know, there's a guy here that wants to buy the boat. How much do you want? So he just fired back a price, and she reiterated the price. He goes, I'll tell my wife to bring my checkbook. We'll buy your boat. And it was just like that. Their boat was sold. And they were just sitting, Lord, what are you doing? And it took them about two years to realize that that boat had become an idol in their life. It had been something good. It had been something enjoyable. It had been something they'd shared with friends and family. But it had become something where we've got this boat and we've invested the money. So on the weekend, we better go to the lake. And over the course of about two years, three years, they had spent every summer Sunday at the lake. And when they finally sold the boat, they realized what God really wanted was faithful attendance at church. Now, I'm thankful that when I met Scott all those many years ago, he had already made that offering because he was already receiving back the rewards that the Lord had for him. I don't know what your boat is. I know some things the Lord has been talking to me about. But I guarantee you that there are things that the Lord is saying, will you just let me have that? And we don't know why he wants it, except maybe just to open our hand and humbly acknowledge, I need you more than my stuff, more than my security. You are my peace, Lord. And we cannot do this without you. Band, come up and let's pray. Uh, Let's play together.